podcast is brought to you by Mobile Arts Programming. All right, I'm Wes. And I'm John. And welcome back to another episode of Bittersweet Stories. This is the podcast where we kind of jump into the life of different frontline workers and various social service jobs. That's right. We get to hear um, lots of different stories, some of the highs and the lows. And today we are joined with... Donna Reed. Very nice to have you today, Donna. Yeah, Donna, it's uh, awesome to have you here. Um, you've been a huge influence on the two of us, and, and uh, we thought it would just be perfect to kind of have you on the show and, and talk a bit about your experience. Okay. Um, so maybe to start, kind of just uh, tell us a bit about your background. How did you end up getting into uh, social work and, and kind of what were some of the first jobs you had and, and just kind of start there? Okay. Um, I kind of fell into into social work. I was actually, um, I was uh, I was at university, and I was thinking that maybe I might want to be a psychologist. Um, I ended up with a double masters in uh, sociology and English. I also thought maybe I might go to teachers' college. So there were all these things happening. And um, I took a SOCH course at Guelph, and part of what I had to do was a field placement. Mm -hmm. My field placement um, put me with a probation officer at the time, and he basically decided that he would have me work with all of the kids that he couldn't access. Um, And so he introduced me to one particular young woman who had significant emotional regulation issues. She Mm -hmm. had a horrible, horrible temper. Um, And she was on probation for a variety of reasons, which were related to her anger and kind of lashing out. Right. Mm -hmm. And she lived in a group home, and I had never even heard of a group home before. And so I would go, and um, part of what I had to do with her was to get her job ready, Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really tricky. Um, but I would go and I would pick her up at the group home and I would take her for various, um, job interviews and training and skills programs, um, none of which were very successful because okay. of her interpersonal challenges. Right. Okay. Um, and some of the things that happened, um, with her, uh, really taught me about the importance of understanding where all that anger was coming from. Right. And it wasn't a huge leap for me because I was a really angry kid. I was a very, mm-hmm. very angry adolescent. Mm-hmm. And so I saw parts of myself in her. Right. Um, and um, I was able to connect with her and support her in ways that other people weren't, and I wasn't intimidated by her. Right. Yeah, that, that kind of relational sort of ability to connect with somebody is, is just so almost innate, but like so important too, yeah. right? Really important. Yeah. And to not be, to not be scared off mm-hmm. by right. mm-hmm. the behavior, right? I guess it was less something to be afraid of and more something that you identified with. Yeah. You're not like, ooh, what's mm-hmm. going on here? You're like, I know. I mm-hmm. probably have a pretty good idea of what's <laughs> <Yeah>. going on. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when I um, when I graduated, my first job was in a group home, and it was working with a whole group, a whole house of kids. Okay. And I like mean, mixed gender. Uh, mixed right. gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mixed gender. Um, but they were kids who really had kind of burned out all of their other placements. It was sort of their very last um, kind of respite in the storm. Right. And they had all kinds of trauma backgrounds um, that some of them were quite articulate about describing and others just described through acting out. Mm -hmm. Huge anger issues. And so that was my very first job, and I worked with them for a while, and then the house closed. Um, But I learned things when I was in the group home that I never, ever learned or heard of when I was at university. In school, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and so going into that kind of initial experience, what what were some of the things that you think like helped you prepare for that or or was there even anything or was it just kind of getting thrown into the fire and seeing oh this is how it is yeah it was getting yeah. thrown into the fire right okay. which you would have gotten a taste of when you were doing your placement i guess a little that, bit yeah without the responsibility and without the accountability right mm-hmm. right right because right. you were otherwise under the wing of your supervisor yeah. when you're doing your placement but getting hired and actually working there it's a totally different sort of vantage point that you have it was very different yeah and uh, and it was one of those things. So the, the first group home that I worked in, they didn't have any female staff. Hmm. They were all male staff. So the director really wanted a female. And when he interviewed me, I had actually been accepted at another program north of Toronto that I was a bit sketchy about going to, but I was a new grad. It was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember that I went through my whole kind of what I've learned in school and what I value and how I understand kids and all of that. And, um, and just as I was leaving, he said, I have one really important question for you that I haven't had a chance to ask yet. And I mm-hmm. said, what's that? And he said, how tall are you? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Not what I was expecting yeah. <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, (laughs) so that was quite an experience. And then from there I worked in three other group homes. So kind of came back into the city, um, worked at an all girls home, uh, in Clarkson. Um, also an incredible learning, uh, opportunity, just unbelievable. Um, and then worked for uh, Children's Aid Relief. Okay. Um, did that for a while. Had a family crisis. Uh, my dad passed away. Okay. I ended up being unemployed for a while. Then I came into the city, started working in a secure corrections facility. Wow. Um, did that while I was also doing relief in a secure treatment facility here, um, which is where I really wanted to work. Right. Okay. And and why? What, like what drew you to that place in particular? I really liked the philosophy in terms of working with kids that were really at significant risk. Mm, Okay. Um, and I had, um, I had read an article 
in the Toronto Star about this place. And it just had a really good feel to it for me. I really liked it. So I started calling them, and I kept calling the unit manager. And um, finally, I called him enough times that he said, well, you can come in and meet with me, but we have absolutely no openings. Okay. And I said, that's fine. I don't care. You know, I'll come and I'll talk with you. And I went in and I talked with them. And when I left, I was on the relief list. Okay. So I just pushed and pushed and pushed to get there. Um, and then um, at that time, it was a treatment center for very young kids up to the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And they were kids who, who many of them had engaged in suicidal behavior, right. um, like nine-year-olds. Mm, wow. Right. Um, most of them had endured some kind of complex trauma, sexual abuse or physical abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were dealing with what we used to refer to as Axis One diagnoses. So they were, at the time, they were labeled as schizophrenic or they were bipolar or, right, there mm -hmm. were... There were all of those mm -hmm. kinds of labels right. that were attached to them. Wow. And it was a secure treatment setting. So we would keep them until they were able to go to more of a step down in care. Right. Sure. So, so I was doing that. And then at the same time, I was working in detention, which was a completely different scenario because mm -hmm. it's custody. Right. So it's not treatment. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the two really don't, they don't, they don't meld well, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So so I was doing that. Um, I got into a full-time gig at the treatment center, stayed there for quite a while. I was picking up some individual contract work with a community mental health setting, mm -hmm. and then I ended up getting a full-time job there. I stayed there for about 13 years. And then I came here. Right. Wow. And then you've been a teacher for the last uh, 15 years or so, yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Wow. There was a, that's quite a lot. Yeah. Even, yeah. even as you sort of delved into your personal life there with your, this sort of family tragedy and then that being followed by being unemployed. Um, I mean, that's in mm -hmm. and of itself quite a lot. But yeah. also it sounds like there has been um, sort of like no shortage of, um, tough situations just in general it sounds like everywhere that you worked you were with some people that were pretty pretty far to that end yeah like pretty kind of extreme yes. circumstances it sounds like yes and when i started at the treatment center um at the secure treatment center i was kind of the child abuse expert there okay. so any time that a kid came in with a, a sexual abuse history then I was the person who would work with them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I received training um, and, uh, you know, I did um, lots of uh, academic upgrading and right. all of that. But in terms of the emotional impact of that work at that time, there was no such thing mm -hmm. as secondary trauma. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a really interesting process for me. And then when I worked in community mental health, um, I had, we, my co-facilitator and I, we had the very first group for young women 
who um, had been convicted of assault or assault causing bodily harm. So we had the very first girls anger management group in Toronto hmm. and we ran that for 10 years. Wow. And that's like a real high point yeah. in my career. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. really amazing and brilliant, um, resilient young women who right. taught me an awful lot. Right. That, I, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, again, given the sort of sort of dire circumstances that uh, you would just see probably such resiliency in, in each of these cases. Um, and again, a testament to yourself, quite mm-hmm. resilient as well, right? I, I, don't, I don't think that it's for the faint of heart to sort of do the work that you've done. So it's a testament to your own resiliency as well, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd be curious to know, like, I feel a few times now I've heard um, you making reference to the emotion of anger and especially when you sort of think of like adolescence and it's a bit of a trying process just being an adolescent, let alone going through these circumstances. Yeah. Would you say that like overwhelmingly the emotion you encountered the most was anger or are there any other sort of like? So the way that I see it, I see you've got anger at one end of the spectrum and you've got sadness Mm. at the other end. Right. And my practice taught me and and it has held true to today Mm -hmm. that when you're working with someone who's really 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 angry that anger is a protective piece to save them Mm -hmm. from the incredible sadness right that they're so afraid if they if they access it they just they will never be able to stop crowning um stop crying, they will just drown right. in their sadness. Right. Um, and when you start working with kids who are really, really sad and disengaged in their life and really like watching it through a window and you start to really understand them and you start to give them a voice, then often what will come out of that will be pure rage because Mm -hmm. the sadness just keeps that whoops at bay. Um, So, you know, I think you'll see kids on the continuum. Right. Um, And I am also a firm believer that if I hadn't been angry as a kid, I wouldn't have survived. I think I think anger is a really important um, what's the word? Not a buffer, but anger helps you to be resilient because anger is about moving out of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you're sad and withdrawn and introspective um, and um, well, it's, it's almost like off. a communication tool in a way, right? It's a communication tool, but it's also a way of just keeping yourself engaged in life. Mm-hmm. That even if you're fighting, right. at least you're engaged. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not disengaging. Um, and I've always felt really strongly about that. So I always love those kids. Um, I used to refer to them as the fuck you kids. Right. Because <laughs> no honeymooning you would know right away who you were dealing with yeah you know they would you would see their anger you would feel it right away um and i used to believe and i still believe that as a practitioner when you're working with those kids part of your job and this is why it gets so tricky 
part of your job is to create a safe place for those kids to land. So that rage has to be able to come at you. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to understand it, to deflect it, and to help them work through it. Mm -hmm. So you can't be afraid of it. Right. You don't own it. Mm -hmm. But they, when they have a safe relationship with you, it's there. And as the adult who is replacing whichever caregiver or adult they didn't have in their life, it becomes part of your job to help them learn how to contain that. Right. Mm. So I think anger is a vital force, mm -hmm. life force, mm -hmm. right. really is what I would say. And it and it doesn't surprise me as well as you've as you've highlighted that it's like. Um, a natural aspect of that continuum between the outwardly um, expressions and those that sort of stay within the sadness part of it that like they're sort of um, it's very interesting for you to sort of touch upon the fact that they're that they're so interrelated like that you know mm. and that the anger is just it's funny you know in so many words it almost sounds like it's great that they are so angry because it means that they are doing that expression they are getting out it's an outwardly response you know yeah yeah and i think it's also pretty amazing as well that a testament to yourself like if it weren't for your perception of that anger the your responding and your helping them through the treatment would be would be much different and i think you would likely personalize some of that um, if it weren't for the fact that you understood it so much, yeah, you know, that's I a, think so. Yeah. I think that's, uh, obviously pretty, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you had kind of all of this different experience and you were a part of all of these different spaces. Um, n earlier you mentioned that secondary or kind of vicarious trauma that was, you, you know, at this time was almost not talked about or unheard of. Um, what are some of the things that you kind of went through and, and was there, did you find that there was support for you during this time or, or what worked for you? Cause I, I know, you know, just, just knowing you personally, like you are numero uno when it comes to the idea of self care. Yeah. Right. And, and the importance of that now. as a frontline worker, right? Well, now. <laughs> well, there it is. Right. So maybe, maybe kind of just talk to a bit about how that kind of came to be in your own life. It came to be in my own life because I realized that if I wanted to keep being relevant in my work and I want I had to continue to be really present with mm -hmm. my with my the with the of young course. people I was working with. Um, Working with kids with trauma histories, but having never studied trauma. Um, and um, not really knowing what that would look like, never mind what secondary trauma would look like. It was just experience. So it was the feeling that I really can't hear another disclosure, first disclosure about a kid being sexually violated or abused. Um, I can't I can't be that person over and over and over again right. unless, there are people in my life that I can go to and I can talk with about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, imp the personal impact on me. Mm -hmm. So what I did initially is I found out who were the people in the city that were doing that work. Right. 
And I connected with them through conferences. Um, there was a brilliant mentor, and I will definitely use his name, um, Fred Matthews, Dr. Fred Matthews. Um, he was the um, the research head of research at Central Toronto Youth Services, and um, Fred was just incredible to sit down with to say. So this is when when I was doing the girls group, right. um, and to sit down with him and say, "This is how I'm feeling." Um, I had a brilliant supervisor, Lee Vidito, who also really got it. Um, but I had to identify those resources for myself, mm-hmm. um, and um, and then as I got older, I learned kind of more internal ways of dealing with self-care. Right. So lifestyle choices, um, uh, relationships, mm-hmm. um, having other interests. Um, Figuring out ways of taking a break from the, from the intensity mm-hmm. of that work. Sure. Yeah. And I guess just like the big part there is, is even just being genuine with yourself. Yeah. You know, being able to trust yourself and say, you know what, oh, this is something that I need in my life and I actually get something out of it. Yeah. You know? Right. I think um, one thing I remember you saying too, um, when we did have you as a teacher was that, you know, self-care isn't or isn't just chocolate cake and bubble baths. Yeah, that's that right. it's like, you know, that's chocolate right. chocolate cake is the facade of self-care, really. But mm-hmm. it's like if, if you eat enough of it and you get you don't feel too good about yourself, then you're actually probably kind of making that worse as opposed to focusing more on say things like exercise. And actually, I thought it was very interesting that you and it makes sense that you would have found um, the connecting with and speaking with people who were doing the same type of work mm-hmm. for that cathartic kind of um, connection, right? And and actually, what's great about having you talk as well is even with doing this podcast, for an example, we're hoping that if someone were to listen and mm-hmm. say, have taken a similar career path to yourself, that they can hear you speak and go, oh, I know exactly what Donna's talking yeah. about. Yeah. I was there yeah. too. I remember that moment when I had heard another child disclose something and that was a tipping point. And I realized, yeah. you know, because, um, again, just for the intensity of the work that you've done, I'm happy that Wes brought it up because in the back of my head, I was just sort of thinking, how has Donna gotten through all of this? <laughs> right. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and you're here yeah. today and still smiling and obviously speaking like quite positively about mm-hmm. like each of these experiences. So obviously you've, you figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, Again, uh, I keep saying this, but kudos to yourself. Yeah. You know, you've uh, you've obviously done a good job with uh, with everything that your hand has kind of touched mm-hmm. over the years. So, well, we're 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 kind of running low on time. Yeah. Um, but maybe Donna, just to kind of leave it on, on one final note, um, y- y- and you can answer this in in so many ways, but okay. Why why this field? Why did you choose to do this? And why did you stay in this for so long? Despite all this, you know, vicarious trauma you're facing, despite the difficult nature of, you know, the work, it's it's not like you're getting paid, you know, handsomely to do this work. It's not like there's all kinds of recognition, especially as a frontline worker, mm-hmm. you know, from both your peers, but also a lot of the people that you work with sometimes. It's not very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So why? So I think the 
the simplest answer is that I really wish that there had been a child and youth care practitioner in my life right. when I was growing up. I think I probably could have circumvented a lot of bad choices that I made, um, that I could have, uh, that I could have, but as I'm saying that, I'm also thinking about all the experiences I've had have made me who I am. Mm -hmm. So, you know, had I avoided some of the stuff that I went through, then maybe I wouldn't have been as right. effective as a CYC practitioner. Right. The other answer to that, and it's one that I was actually talking about just a little while ago with a colleague about, about my upcoming retirement. Mm -hmm. And this is a more selfish answer, and mm. that is working with young people, working with that energy with mm. that vitality and that spark and staying challenged to be relevant in their lives keeps you youthful mm -hmm. and it keeps you engaged. Mm -hmm. right. Teaching is the same thing, right? right? Um, it's that, it's the energy, it's mm. the vitality, um, incredible resilience. Incre I'm very big about stories and narratives mm -hmm. and people's mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. And the richness of that experience is has also kept me in the work. And, and the fact that I could take, you know, that there might be a whole group of us working with one kid, um, and that kid just keeps saying, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And mm -hmm. then one day they don't say it. Mm -hmm. right. And you get you get in about that yep. far, yeah, <laughs> and then they say "fuck you, fuck yep. you" again, but then a bit less, and then you get a little. So it's it was being effective at building relationships in less traditional kinds of ways right. than what I had been taught in university, of course, yeah, and using my own experience as mm -hmm. the lens for what that was going to look like and what I could do and what I couldn't do. Right. Wow. Right. Well, Donna, it's, it's, you know, been an absolute pleasure to, to sit down and have a conversation you. with yeah. you again. Like you've, you've been, um, instrumental in, in both John and I's kind of, um, foray into this line of work in yeah. this field. And, exactly. and, uh, it's so refreshing to hear you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. Actually, and one quick question. Yeah. How tall are you again? Sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> that was actually Aww. what you said to us the first day. You're sort of like, okay, hello, everyone. My name's Donna. Um, here's a little bit about my background. And uh, to answer your question, I'm six foot two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we're laughing so yeah. hard. <laughs> um, yeah. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned for another episode and, and we'll be uh, sure to, to chat soon. That's right. Mobile Arts Programming, or MAP for short, brings the recording experience to you. If your agency or organization is interested in exploring the positive outcomes of writing and recording music, please visit our website at mobileartsprogramming.com.